Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top-shelf equipment and designers for broadcast, concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know that this is your most important event. It is their goal to make you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to this episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting. I am here today with Tobias Rylander, conceptual and lighting designer. He is a Swedish-based designer who currently lives in Los Angeles. We are in a very unique situation where we have tried to meet up a few times before. We tried at NAM and a few other places, and every time we've tried to meet up, he has been called away to be in Paris or Germany or somewhere else, and we've never actually had a chance to meet up, and now we... Uh, we are at a place where we have nothing else going on. We are both sitting at home and we have nothing but time to sit and chat. We have never actually met before. So this is actually a very, this is the very first time that we've been chatting and we have so much to talk about. Thank you so much for coming, Tobias. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. So what yeah. happened in... What always happens is when we try and set these things up, uh, work always comes knocking. My wife and I have a standing joke that anytime I need work, I will schedule either an interview or a training session and inevitably work comes up. Yeah, that's so true. That's what happened when, yeah, for that NAM talk as well, I just had to jump on a flight to go to Paris for a new corporate client. We're, we're kind of just a band of pirates that way in the fact that we, we always have a duffel bag ready to go and we should always have our, our adapters ready for us and we should be ready to fly at any time. Yeah, it's like when, when you're wait for, waiting for a cab, you just light a cigarette and you short one shows up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great trick. But uh, now we're at a place where my, my suitcase is sitting in my closet. I had to clean out all my shoes put yeah. my my suitcases in my closet where it, it hasn't been there for a while yeah i've done the same i've even organized my closet for the first time in probably three years um <laughs> it's really strange times everything i went from knowing exactly what to do every single day until late july i had planned in my calendar and it's all up in the air I uh, I can't bring myself to actually delete the things out of my calendar. I just have been writing "canceled" in there so that I know that I had something there. Yeah, yeah. I just I true. can't I can't bring myself to delete them because I need no. to know that I, I had something planned there. Yeah, exactly. I'm also lucky enough to have someone help me with my calendar and my travel plans and everything and bookings. Um, and we had a long phone call this morning and it's like, no one knows what's going on. Management doesn't know. Artist management doesn't know. Everything is postponed. I guess we're all going to be fighting for flights and, and scheduling slots and venues um, when this storm blows over. Oh, I am looking forward to that rebound. It is going to be such a snapback. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of last-second phone calls trying to get as many people whipped back together. Yeah, I was, I'm was. i lucky enough to kind of... I was just about to go into kind of final design processes of a couple of projects that I had going on. Um, so I'm still actually working on designs that we know will happen. We just don't know where we'll go into production rehearsals. So it gives me a little bit more time to kind of 
you know, finish those details maybe that you never get to do and think things through a little bit more. But I, I'm lucky enough to have a couple gigs still happening. Oh, it sounds, I'm kind of jealous. You'll actually have time to put all those little artistic touches that you never yeah, exactly. wish you had. You'll probably have all the time to overwork all your designs to make them just Yeah, perfect. exactly. Put, <laughs> put that little flair on the rendering, you know. Absolutely. Uh, that sounds exciting. It sounds like you will be able to actually reach out and find some alternate influences and uh, inspirations to put into your designs. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, thank God for, for internet. Uh, Because a lot of like the meetings that would normally have in person, like I was supposed to fly to uh, Sweden in a couple of days, actually to have meetings. I've been uh, commissioned to do, uh, designed for the Swedish Royal Opera, a ballet that they're doing. And all of that is now digital Zoom meetings, basically. Um, uh, but I just read an article that they're having internet problems in Sweden because <laughs> uh, everyone's using it 24-7 now. So I guess everyone will know that their networks are working. That's when not. the apocalypse will truly happen. Is if exactly the goes down. <laughs> yeah. So now you're at home and you are trying to find extra inspiration. Where does your inspiration normally come from for your for your shows? Well, a lot of different places. Obviously, it all starts with like a vision or uh, idea that the artist or client will have. I've been thinking about that a lot recently, uh, having had a couple of clients that don't really know what they want or are very like vague or diffuse in, in their visions. Uh, when they basically ask you to invent something for them rather than create something with them. Um, I usually just, I start with um, talking to the artist and having like creative discussions and meetings, listening to and looking at references that they have. Um, a lot of the time that references will be art or other shows, sometimes shows that I've already done or someone that I know have done. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd say it always start with a discussion um, I look a lot at like the the um, creative work that the artist already has going on in the like album artwork or website designs or any kind of graphic content that they might have surrounded themselves with already and, and start there to kind of find a red thread to follow. Do you find it? it's your job to take them further in their creative ideas or do you usually try and just prov provide what they're asking for? No, I really try to make them do something unique. Um, like I said, a lot of them will have very precise references. Um, and sometimes it will be designs that someone else has made, but I've also had a lot of clients come to me because they like my style or something that I've already done. Um, obviously, I, I have a, like, a language and an aesthetic to my shows, but I can't do the same show twice for two different artists. That wouldn't be right to them, but it's also not right to me, you know? Um, so... I, I really try, I try to make them understand the importance of doing something unique um, and, and new. Um, and sometimes you, you do that and they just keep going back to the references, which is hard. And sometimes you just have to give them what they want, basically. Well, sometimes they just lack the, uh, the ability to see past their, their references. And they're like, no, that's exactly what I want. And they're like exactly. Just like just, just give know. me this. Just give me this dolly painting and put it up there. You're like wow, that's 
Yeah, exactly. That's, that's not art. Um, no, and people say that like copying or references is the ultimate um, compliment, but I think sometimes enough is enough, <laughs> even if it's <laughs> like your own um, language. It's like I think that we need to start seeing some new stuff. Uh, it's, it's a big challenge. Do you get a very specific vision in your head sometimes that you have to scale back to meet their requirements? Um, yeah, I, I feel like my brain probably works really well realistically. Like I tend to not sell myself or the artist dreams and submarines, I call it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> That's a great it's it's like, you know, you can, it's really easy in a creative meeting to like sit there with you and create really big dramatic scenarios. And like you listen to their ideas and you fill in and you like, what if we did that? What if we did this? I try not to do that too much. I, I try to, for their sake, not promise them or plant unrealistic seeds in their creative minds because it's always going to end up with disappointment. Um, so in that sense, I'm kind of I'm careful with dreaming too big, but obviously I don't let imagination um, stop there. I would imagine that as soon as you're building a submarine, next thing you know, you're into a 53 truck tour and they had, they had planned for five and, yeah, it's like you don't want to build something that won't fly, it will stink, or like you said, won't fit in the trucks. Basically. Yeah, you still have to fit through a loading dock. You have to fit through a, a doors. So you have to fit in trucks. I mean, tr truck space and logistics is the touring designer's framework. It's just something that we have to accept. Um, I'm finding um, a positive new challenge for all of us designers should be to like go down in production size and basically be more efficient with their designs. I call it like redefine design. What is a good design? Is it is a good design these days in the climate that we're in necessarily a like 18 truck tour? or is good design a 12-truck tour or a 9-truck tour? Um, um, taking in mind that like we, we have to think about our environmental footprint, we have to think about how many people, how many mouths we have to serve and fly around the world. Um, is that necessarily a good design, even how beautiful and how big it might be? It's not necessarily a good design if it's ruining the climate basically so i've been thinking a lot about that and try to to make my shows as environmentally friendly as possible i'm finding that to be more and more of a concern uh working at Ayrton, i'm getting lots of requests for people to find out they want to know the carbon footprint of a fixture as opposed to another fixture they want to know what their environmental impact is going to be on the tour yeah because of the lighting Exactly. And that's kind of a, a side effect of us all going over to LED fixtures that what happened is that because they pull less power and take less space, it's like we just put more of them in there. So it's yeah. like it's still, it's still the same truck, truck space because we'll fit more of the fixtures in there. We don't go down in fixture count <laughs> and like pull less power. We just put more shit in there. You know? Yeah, we definitely didn't go from a 400 amp to a 200 amp for the same rig. We took, we still had the 400 amp and we just doubled the rig. Exactly. Um, so that's something I'm very like cautious about. Um, it I'm sounds like sure. you're looking for the fundamentals and you're looking for the actual core artistic 
impression of the artistic well, we do, impact? Like, we, I mean, we do have, like, the, the framework that we're used to working with is truck space, load weight, um, setup hours, loading times, uh, crew size, where it should be kind of the, like, um, what do you call it? The, the environmental footprint, the carbon yes. footprint that we're emission, emissioning and like what can, what can we afford basically in, in trying to neutralize our footprint basically. That should be the, good, the, the new norm of a good design. Um, That's a very real concern. It is a concern and also it's like we have to do it. We can't ignore it and we have to be part of the solution. It's like we don't design a kitchen table that you can't serve food on or we can't design a chair that you can't sit on. That's not good design. <laughs> it's, it might be beautiful, but it's not good design because it's not ergonomically right, you know? Yeah, it doesn't matter how beautiful your door is if the hinges creak. We can't. Yeah, eat. exactly. Uh, so I know that you generally like to work alone, but you've also worked as a collective. Uh, how's that going for you nowadays? Working on your own? Do you do you well, prefer not having to compromise? No, um, I mean I always see my work as a collective effort and. There are so many involved in the creative process. Um, so I don't see it like I work alone. I, I always I work really closely with the LD uh, and programmers. I'm super happy to give them co-design credit because I never have done what I did without them. So I don't necessarily see it that way. And I always kind of end up working with the same people who know me and my language. Um, but so like being alone and having my own company and my own name now, the only difference is kind of that I handle my own business decisions, basically. Mm. Uh, a lot of people get lost in that because they're, they're so used to designing and programming. They don't really understand how much work and how much business goes into the entertainment business. No, it's crazy. Um, and that was one of the like the, the biggest like insurance of being in a collective or in a group or a design house was to have each other's backs and and trust each other and like always have the guarantee of work more or less or help each other out bounce ideas look at drawings together and stuff like that uh, but um yeah the business side is something that is the, like the negative negative side of things, at least for me, I'm not a businessman at all. Um, I'm like, I have a phobia of paperwork and like, I, I can't do it. It's like my brain freezes. It's that part of me doesn't work at all. So I'm super happy to, to have management and business management and lawyers that take care of that part of me. We are very much the same in that one. I'm all about the, the emotions and the relationships and the spectacle of lighting, but the, the paperwork that comes along with it, I, am, I hate it. I really don't enjoy that part at all. But I know yeah. that somebody has to be able to look at a, at a spreadsheet to see what we're doing or an Excel sheet to see how much we cost. But that is no, my, exactly. my least favorite like part. And I mean, having the, the conversation with about a design fee or a budget with an artist management will definitely kind of stain your, your creative approach to the project. Um, and I mean, managers are managers. They're going to fight for their client and their money. So... I mean, some people I'm sure are great at having that discussion. I'm not. I get really sad <laughs> and worried. And yeah, I just can't start a project that way. So I'm super happy to have someone to, to handle that for me. So it sounds like that's one of the things that you maintained 
after being part of a collective is that you needed, you know yourself well enough to know that you need a manager, a representative, a representative. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was um, fortunate enough to have befriended one of the music artist management that I was working with. So I now have the same manager basically as the 1975 because I've been working with them for so long and got really close friends with um, Jamie Oborn, who has the management company All On Red. And uh, my day-to-day manager, who is Mark Hayton, who does a fantastic job. But basically, they came from and come from um, musical artist um, management and had kind of no idea of the designer world or the lighting world or or stuff like that. Um, But us being that close friends, Jamie offered to help me, uh, at least as a as a start, but we've stuck with it. And it's great because he basically knows my value to the artist and what I've done to the artist. So, and he knows how the client's management will approach a project and what makes sense to them. So a lot of the time I'll talk to my manager since he understands the artist aspect of a deal, like how much they can afford, how much my attention to the project is worth to the client, how much they're going to be able to pay, like spend on stuff. So that's already there. I have a good understanding of what I should be doing for this type of artist. What a huge leg up that is, because that is the toughest part for so many designers is to, when somebody asks you for a bid, you're like, well, what, what's your budget? We don't know. Or, or we're not going to tell you or man, for you to have access to that information, that's a huge uh, head start. Yeah. And it's been, it's been so great for both uh, my management and me because they also get a really good understanding of the touring industry coming from me and talking to production managers and me as a designer and also kind of understand how the whole design industry works in terms of fixtures and vendors and uh, manufacturers and stuff like that. Um, They get a good understanding for all of their other clients, (laughs) what's realistic, how much they should spend, um, how much it's going to cost them when they approach a project in relation to their ambition, basically. And so that also relieves you of having to self-promote. You have somebody else talking you up. Well, yeah, I, I would hope he does that. I've been, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, to be honest, but because I've, I've been fortunate enough to, like, I haven't really had to chase so much work the um, last couple of years. Um, I've stayed busy and... Um, even been fortunate enough to have to turn down projects. Um, God knows what's going to happen to the whole industry from from here on, but um, it's definitely amazing for me to have a management, and I'm willing to pay them anything to just keep me out of trouble, <laughs> make sure that uh, <laughs> like I get where I need to go, and make sure that I kind of keep deadlines and have a realistic schedule because that's also a big part of like the creative process. How many projects do you take on? How much can you handle? Um, Like obviously a manager will always want you super busy the whole time, but um, there's there are only so many projects that you can do creatively. I find that's the that's the hardest part. What if you take on a client that you can't come up with that idea for, you know? That sounds like a huge load off of your shoulders that you can put onto somebody else that you trust that will make sure that you have a vested interest that you guys are both working together and it's and it sounds like they want to keep you working but not too much. They want to make sure that you're employed, but not too much. And you, and in return, the, you know, they get a cut of whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, 
I would imagine that it sounds like you're happy to pay a fair percentage to your team for that, for their efforts. Yeah. I pay 15%. Okay. And of a design fee. Okay. And before that, when you were on your own, do you remember the times when you would have to like, did you ever have to do cold calls or random emails or uh, self-marketing? Oh God. Yeah. And you would always feel like run over by a truck after you've been on the call for a manager, a manager, an artist manager is always going to make you feel like you should be grateful that they even (laughs) called you, you know, Yes. and offer day rates and even, yeah. I would imagine when you moved to LA, that was a huge task for you you had to really hit the ground running. Yeah. I, I was in New York when I moved to, to LA cause Corey and Roy was there. Okay. And that's where we set up seven design works, but all of, I found myself, the reason why I ended up in New York was because all of my Scandinavian Swedish artists, their biggest markets were North America. And I had some family in New York. So it just made sense for me to have New York as my hub. And that's when I started hanging out with Roy and Corey. So I was super lucky to go from, you know, the touring LD, handling my own lights, flipping them up and down out of cases every day, programming the show, running running up and down letters to have like a really exciting meeting with Roy Bennett and Corey Fitzgerald <laughs> all of a sudden. So I was super lucky like that happened as I, found myself in New York with a lot of exciting artists. Wow. That sounds like a, a, a huge uh, opportunity. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's the biggest opportunity. It's a dream come true for anyone. I'm sure. At least in, in those shoes. So I'm, yeah, I'm super grateful and super, super happy. Of course, they're still very good friends of mine and we just parted ways in creative matters, I guess, and, and business wise. That happens. It, uh, it's definitely something that artists, uh, don't always see eye to eye. And sometimes we're unwilling to compromise. I, uh, it happens to the best. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine that a lot of it was between some of the stuff that you do. That's just amazing, which is in the, I hate to say the, the corporate world, but some of the art installations that you do that's not in the rock and roll world, I would imagine that was a little bit out of their wheelhouse. Is yeah, I I'm not sure really. Um, but yeah, there was a time where, uh, again, you know, we all have luck. Um, yes. I guess my corporate and more installation work started where, with Alexander Wang, the f- fashion designer who was the in-house designer at Balenciaga for a while uh, asked me to do the Balenciaga fashion shows in, in Paris. So my, my first ever fashion show was Balenciaga opening Paris fashion week. <laughs> oh my God. What, yeah. a me- what a meteoric <laughs> rise you've had. Yeah, that was interesting and a very steep learning curve, but um yeah, I never really saw that as a corporate gig in the same, like, with, like, the, the installation works that I've done for Acne Studios or, or Calvin Klein. It's like, I've never really thought about them as corporate events. They've been, I've approached them as installation works, basically. Um, but it's interesting, now we're, we're talking about it, I've realized they're com- corporate events. <laughs> If they didn't feel like they were corporate events until now, then they weren't as corporate as I think they, as one would think. That's uh, yeah. Well, I, the only I, time they're really corporate is when they feel corporate. Yeah, like tie in your forehead, swinging bottles. A lot of I, the times I, when I'm working for a rock and roll band and we go into a corporate event, the day just feels corporate. Right. You don't get the things that you're accustomed to. You don't get the top billing. You 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 really treat it as a as an opening slot. You just yeah, I mean the thing in a in a dance monkey attitude. 
Yeah, that kind of corporate has never happened to me. Thank God, maybe. I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of money in there, but yeah, I've never flown to Abu Dhabi to do a corporate event. That sounds like uh, sounds like you the, the the artists that you're working with are just not quite. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah, they're just not interested in that. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, uh, it sounds like you've been able to really express your art in ways that you are most interested in. It sounds like you've been able to turn down the the shows that you're that don't suit your your language. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, that might be it. And I've also, um, I've worked with a lot of artists that I already had kind of a, um, relation to. I've met them like through mouth to mouth or, or met them via artists that I've already worked with. So already there, there is kind of an existing relationship between me and the artist and um, I'm a, a lot of the works work that I get is an artist talking to another artist. It's like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. Maybe you should talk to Tobias. He could probably sort that out for you. Or like, uh, he's really interested in those kind of fields that you're talking about. Talk to Tobias. I think that's how I get most of my work. It's great to know that word of mouth is still the number one form of uh, uh advertisement word of the mouth yeah i'm sorry i said mouth to mouth uh, yep. that's <laughs> probably not the case <laughs> especially not in these times no no mouth to mouth these days <laughs> yeah i yeah i'm i'm swinglish sometimes uh as uh now that i work for a french company a paris-based Ayrton lighting we I find that more and more how we can find little things that we we would have never noticed was a, a cultural difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that I really loved before we got to meet was your website. It is mm-hmm. so sleek and. Oh, you think so? I think it's very fundamental. I love the, like, I feel like the top photo from each show is there and it's very prominent. Even if your uh, word of mouth wasn't being so successful, I would imagine that people enjoy just going to your website. I think so. I've always, always, since my like earliest, earliest days, found the, the website and the show real, the hardest, hardest thing to kind of, keep up with and manage i now have have mark hayton my day-to-day manager manage it and also sometimes my social media because i get so much anxiety from like trying to promote myself find the right picture whatever um i find it really hard so i'm happy that you like it because i always question it um if anybody just, wants to weigh in on that, then you can go to TobiasRylander.com and you can uh, feel free to, in the comments, you can tell us if you agree. That it yeah, because it's also I, like always like looking at a picture of your own show, you're always going to like, hmm, that could have been t- better taken. Or it's like, I would, you know, it's like, it doesn't really look like that in reality. It looks better in the venue. So, yeah. My my relationship to to photography of live shows, I'm I'm I still having to find like the the perfect photographer. Please DM me if you're the one. I have we have with the 1975. We have Jordan Hughes, who's basically constantly touring with the band, and he's done a really good job in in documenting it. Um, but. Um, yeah, if I could choose, I would not have a website. <laughs> I think we are our own worst critics when it comes to that, for sure. That's true. Yeah, uh, I would imagine finding the best photo is especially tough these days because there are so many photos available. Billions. It used to be limited to just the professional 
photographers shooting from front of house or, you know, one or two band supplied photographers. But now there are just so many photos of every event. Yeah. And I mean, for the 1975 shows, um, social media is a goldmine because first of all, it's, it's designed to be uh, social media friendly. It's it was designed in portrait to suit people's phones, phone grips, and with video projects that didn't have um, heat shields on the LEDs, so that you could view the video screens from any angle. Uh, we're thinking about refresh rates in video screens and fixtures to match iPhones. Um, so I found like the best pictures of that show is like the hashtag 1975 live that's where i find the like the gold shots of the, <laughs> the show and i try to approach every show that way these days you're taking it to the next level then you are designing for iphone cameras and not the human eye well yes absolutely but i, w- I would never take a decision based on social media or phone cameras. I wouldn't compromise the live experience uh, to make something work on the, on the phone, but I will go of course. To, to length to make it work. Um, yeah. Sitting out in front of house, do you find yourself watching the show through other people's cameras or do you have your own camera or how are you... How are you doing? No, you know, <laughs> I always get disappointed at myself because I'll be in front of house. And even if it's like the show is on the, on the run, it's programmed, it's done. But I always find myself after the show, like, oh, shit, I should have taken photos because I just enjoy watching a live show without a phone in front of me. I always forget to take photos. <laughs> <laughs> So then how do you end up, how do you know what turns out best? Are you just scrolling social media after the show and then retooling? No, we do that in, in production rehearsals. Okay. Um, we have different phones. We have different people. Um, uh, and yeah, we look at it that way when we program it and look at like intensities and refresh rates and, you know, a lot of, I've gone through months and months of research of LED screens to make sure that we, you can take photos of it in refresh rates and you get these pixel moiré patterns that will, like, a thing could look amazing in real life and then it looks like uh, static noise, you know, on, on, on phones. So people will stop taking photos of it. I've heard stories of artist managers going to the top of an arena, pulling out their phones, snapping a picture of the arena, and then saying, well, that's how big the video wall needs to be because that's the biggest I can fit into, a, into an iPhone screen. Yeah. And, and that's, how they, that's how they start the design for their tour because that's the maximum impact they can get from an iPhone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, I mean, all of that is happening and what they don't know is loading weight and rigging times above seats. And then it like, that's kind of why it's great to have a music uh, manager as my manager as well. It's like, it's amazing the things that we talk about and that we both realized during the design process is like, we can't do that. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't do it. And we're going to have to accept the, f- the fact, basically. <laughs> do any of your artists come to you after the show with social media photos and ask like, hey, wh- why do I look like this? Uh, what can we do to make this better? Are, are they using social media photos as reference? Um, yeah. They do. Um, I mean, of course, it's like, um, as a lighting designer, I'm, I'm, I hope that my, my artists trust me and that I know what I'm doing in terms of color temperature of photography and camera works and stuff. But like we started talking about 
early. It's like, it's a group effort. So, I mean, I'll have the camera directors to talk about white balance and stuff like that. But I also include them in the discussion of social media photography. It's like, is this the white balancing that we're doing for our production necessarily the best white balancing for the other 3000 cameras in this room, you know? Yeah, because the production cameras are, you know, between four and eight per show, whereas the audience is 20 to 50,000 cameras. Exactly. So which one do we white balance to? <laughs> and, and like, do we compromise our production? In that case, yes, we do. And the eight cameras in there are going to be seen by the 20,000 people that are in the room, whereas the photos taken by the 20,000 audience members, those are going to be shared worldwide within a matter of seconds yeah exactly that's amazing that is that is a whole new world to us that's yeah it's something <laughs> that uh lds of just a generation before would never have to worry about no absolutely uh, i remember i want to say that the story was that bruce springsteen was the one who would say that photographers couldn't take photos after the first three songs because he would get sweaty and I might be attributing that to the wrong artist. And that used to become, that was a, a general rule. Is nobody could take photos after the first three songs. I know, and I hate that because you always, all the photos look the same and you never get like the special moments of a show captured because they're at the end of the show most of the time. Yeah, so the, f the professionals take <laughs> off after the first three songs and then yeah. the rest of the show is just based on the audience yeah snap snapchat photos yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah so when yeah i say oh, oh open the show for photographers yeah if anybody's listening we should uh, we'll start a petition uh, it's probably the lowest on the totem pole of important factors in the industry right now but it is something we'll work on in a year or so yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, it's a big adjustment for photographers as well. They better learn how to photograph a show with the same adjustments as a phone camera because that's where the beauty is going to lie, you know? Yeah, I, uh, I, I believe it's a whole new world. I believe that a lot of people are experiencing the entire show through their phone now. I... Sometimes when I'm taking on a new client, I will go and I will find whoever that person was that just filmed the entire show from, you know, half stage left. And they just sat there with their phone the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like hunting old kiss, <laughs> kiss documentaries. <laughs> yes. It's just, I spend half my life doing, by the way. <laughs> um, it's, when I'm in a show live, I'm watching that person. I'm like, what are you doing? You are, you're wasting your time. You're, you you just completely squandered this, this moment. But then when I find their video online, I'm like, Oh, thank God somebody did this. Yeah. No. And I mean, it's, it's gone beyond that. It's like, that's part of their life now. Um, it, like the young 1975 um they have a young a really young clientele and all like a lot of the content that we create a lot of like i said we designed the show in portrait for them um it's they drive the whole things and they're it's a culture for them to document their their lives and like prove they're there and whatever um, it's a culture that I will never understand or like join, but I have to understand it to grow as a designer into what the next coming generation is going to want. Do they have competitions to see like who's gone to more 1975 shows and who can tag themselves into the most shows? Oh, absolutely. That is amazing. Yeah, they do. I mean, they, they're very, very committed and grateful and, like, appreciative. They're kind of the best fans in the world. Um, and, yeah, I've talked about this uh, a couple of times before, but 
1975 development was that they went from a black and white, complete black and white monochromatic environment on the first album where all artwork and um, campaign was black and white. And the fans started getting, they got tired of, of that basically. So they started coloring the black and white photos in their social media apps in a certain color scheme. And all of them started following the same color scheme. So what we did for the next show was to, to make, go from black and white into the color, color scheme that the whole fan base had started coloring their social media feeds in. So when they started taking photos of the next show, they didn't have to colorize them in the wraps. And so we gave them what they wanted and what they felt that the band was to them, basically. That is some amazing attention to detail. It's that level of attention to, to detail that uh, definitely deserves a Night of Illumination award. <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah. I'm glad whoever thought of that was like, man, this guy deserves a Night of Illumination award. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still very proud of, of that, like that um, second show we did for the 1975. Cause we, that's where it all turned. We involved so much attention to social media in that. Um, in like 3D modeling and viewing from all positive, uh, possible camera angles and uh, video screen and stuff, color scheme. Um, and also using video as the, the prominent light source. Like this, the side, side lighting would be video screens. Um, silhouette lighting would be video screens. We program each individual surface of the screens as individual lighting sources. So we had control over everything and could program chases or, you know, buttons, temp buttons as we want. Wow. That's impressive. Uh, one of the things I think is, does a good job to describe what we're talking about here is uh, at festivals as of, you know, six, seven years ago, I would have somebody come out to front of house and be like, well, I'm the band's social media director. And mm -hmm. it was just a thing like, oh, well, okay do your thing, whatever it is that you do. And then they would come and ask for Wi-Fi or something or a, a, a direct line at front of house. And like, well, we don't have that for you. And now yeah. when we do festivals, whoever the social media director is, is just short of the boss. They come out like, hey, where's my Wi-Fi? I need the fastest Wi-Fi. And when they tell me to make a change, I'll look over at an artist manager or something like, yeah, if he... If the social media tells you to make a change, you make a change. You're like, okay, I'm making a change based on what the social media director told me. So that's interesting. I haven't really experienced that to that extent. Um, I'm experiencing a lot of out of the blue creative directors, though, that would do that. Okay. Uh, I feel like anyone can be a creative director these days and they will put that kind of title on their business card as soon as they can. Um, I haven't experienced the, the social media thing, mostly maybe because I work really closely with them from the get-go. So yeah. we're, on this, we're on the same page before we start the tour because we like we include the campaign and details. We even put like little East this is something we do a lot with the 1975. We put in the video content and in details of the design, we put Easter eggs of things that has been and things that will come and like a frenetic amount of information. So I have, we have fans sitting like in kind of creating stop motion graphics of video content that we're doing looking for clues to what is going to come and what is connected to like previous campaigns or whatever <laughs> but yeah uh, you guys are really telling a story then oh absolutely it's like we it's like matthew a, healy the lead singer is one of the smartest person that i've ever met and we work it really in depth in details like we will paint 
like kind of, you know, fight club, one frame Easter eggs in video content that's like the most committed fans will pick up on and like start, they will basically start campaign rumors of artwork that is to come or song titles on the next coming album or, you know, we, we, we play a lot with that kind of stuff. You're not just doing a show. You're doing an entire saga, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Everything is connected. Wow. That is so inspiring to know that that is where the younger, the up-and-coming bands, not that the 1975 is still up-and-coming, but that's so inspiring to know that that's the level of detail and artistic license that's going into shows. That is... Looks like well, it's... It, yeah, it's kind of, it's like, it's the new me. My reference it would be like being a KISS nerd. It's like you you look at photos of live, live shows from the Destroyer tour and you'll notice like, huh, Paul Stanley's got a different strap to his guitar on this show. It's like, it can't, it can't be from the show <laughs> that like it's said to be because he was not wearing that costume or whatever. We put a lot of information in the content that reflects an event in the campaign history of the band, basically. That is, that's really inspiring. It's really good to know that that's happening. Yeah, come to the show. Absolutely. Anybody who is uh, sitting at home right now, feel free to go and Google uh, some 1975, the 1975 on... Uh, as a great way to pass the time and maybe you can see what some of the artists are, what some of the fans are looking at and what Tobias is putting together. Thank you so much for your time. We've, uh, we've reached the maximum amount of time that we could, I feel like we could talk for another hour. I'm so intrigued. I enjoyed this. It's fun. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time, Tobias. I will. Thank you for, for having me. I will definitely go online and take a look at some of the, some of the magic.